glad you heard that too. I was, you know, beginning to be concerned. <laughs> hey, thanks for being here today. And you know, when we were planning today, we knew we wanted to do something special for Memorial Day. And that's why, I don't know if you noticed the flag out in the lobby, and if you didn't notice the flag out in the lobby, I'm concerned for your eyesight. Uh, but we wanted to also do something special in our service because men and women have given their lives to give us the freedom that we have in our country today, including the freedom to gather like we have, that we are now here in this room and online to gather together to worship because we have friends, people we pray for and support financially, missionaries in other countries who don't have that freedom and the possibility of losing their lives in that country is very real. And so we, wanted to, we knew we wanted to do something today. And then the shooting in Uvalde happened. And we knew that a town, I don't know about you, I'd never heard of it before. But all of a sudden, it's in my prayers, it's on my heart. There are parents and family members that are, whose hearts have been broken and are just breaking ours. And so we wanted it to be part of our prayer time today as a congregation as well. So we're going to observe a moment of silence and then I will close that uh, in prayer. So why don't we do that? Father, we do come before you in silence now. After singing very loudly, very energetically, we come before you in silence because this weekend has great meaning to us, and we do live between the celebration and the silence of this day, the importance of the wait. Some of us know very well the cost of freedom in our country because the one who gave their life, those who have lost, of those who have lost their lives in our military, they were a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a grandparent or a friend. And so, Father, we just want to say thank you for the freedom that we enjoy to be able to come before you. And may we not take that for granted, knowing that we have here what not everyone has around the world, or not everyone has what we have here. And God, we are grateful for that. But our hearts also turn to, to you, Valdi. God, and the hearts of family and friends that are weighted down today with grief at the loss of life. And so, Father, we pray for the families of Nevaeh and Jacqueline and McKenna and Jose and Eliana and Uzziah and Amory and Xavier and Jess, Jace and Tess and Miranda and Alethea and Annabelle and Matei and Alexandria, and Layla, and Jayla, and Eliana, and Rogelio. Father, we pray for the families of Irma and Eva who gave up their lives with their students. So God, our hearts are heavy here in Ohio for those down in Texas. And we know that you're mindful of them in spirit. We know that you already surround them. And we pray that your children, people who wear your name just like we do, that they would be surrounding those families so that they would know the love and the compassion of your kingdom. And may our prayers hasten you, Spirit, to surround them. 
So we are grateful for this weekend when we get to stop and have our minds recalibrated and our hearts recalibrated by you and your word and worship and prayer and remembering. God, thank you for that. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Listen, uh, if this is your first time here, thanks for being here. My name is Mike. I'm the lead pastor here at uh, MCC, and we appreciate you being in the room, appreciate you being with us online. Uh, I mentioned in my weekly update, and if you don't receive that, all we need is your email address, and you'll get an email from me uh, each weekend, that what's happening here at MCC this weekend is very similar to what's happening in homes all over the place, maybe yours. We we live in a tension this weekend where we're remembering something very important with Memorial Day and then Uvalde happening. We, we are remembering something important that is heavy, and we're worshiping God who brings hope to the world. Specifically, uh, we want to remember the families uh, of those who have lost loved ones, whether in the military or in Texas this past week, and yet we offer worship to a God who brings us hope. Right? It's our hope to continue to move forward. So there's great purpose in how we live and worship him. So if you haven't, if you don't know yet, we've been in this series called Play and Purpose to remind ourselves that God has designed us for both. Typically, we lean way into one or way into the other and to the detriment of the other side of it. And so the first week, we wanted to talk about that. The first week, Adam talked about that word and, and how if you've been leaning one way or the other uh, uh, and, and haven't had a full body, you know, play and purpose kind of experience, the Sabbath is really what resets us. It recalibrates our thinking, our hearts. Every week we come together and God's word recalibrates us. And then last week, Eric, because we were celebrating our graduates, a graduate Sunday, he talked about purpose. And today I want to talk with you through play. And just so we're all on the same page, uh, on the notes in the YouVersion Bible app, you'll see this. Play is defined as being engaged in activity for enjoyment and recreation rather than a serious or practical purpose. Activity engaged in for enjoyment and recreation, especially by children. Uh, And so enjoyment and recreation, I love it. And I want to make sure you get this. So it's in the notes. It'll be on the screen. Play means different things to different people. And maybe you've noticed that in your own house. Uh, Sandy and I could not be more different in this area. For me, growing up, I've got two brothers, and we went at play hard. It was kind of a rule in the total household that if you didn't bleed, we didn't play a game. And it didn't matter. Listen, if it was football or basketball or kickball or Monopoly or Old Maid, somebody was going to bleed before we were done. Sandy's family, as you can imagine, uh, not as competitive they were, they were nice to each other, which was kind of a foreign concept in my family, but they were nice to each other, and they enjoyed doing things like, you know, putting puzzles together and helping each other and treating each other nicely. So different people play differently, uh, and when we talk about, you know, this recreation and enjoyment, and while it may be, did you notice in the definition, especially for children, I just want to say it's important for us in this room to know not exclusively for children. George Bernard Shaw said this in the notes, take it home. You don't quit playing because you grow old. You grow old because you quit playing, right? That should be Bible right there. Maybe it is. Proverbs 17 says, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. God has made us in such a way that joy and humor and play 
are meant, they're meant to be vital parts of our lives. So the question becomes, do we ever see that in Jesus' life? I mean, talk about somebody with a serious mission. He came to save us all from our sins. Talk about a tight window. He had three years to do that. Uh, If anyone had a job that was so important, he certainly did not have fun. He didn't have time for it. It would have been Jesus. And yet again, he shows us a better way. Look at John chapter 2 with me. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana and Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, Jesus said, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to his servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who drew the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So our text starts with on the third day, referring to what has just happened. So you have to go back to the first chapter of John and you find out that Jesus has just been baptized by his cousin John. And then the next day, six disciples begin to follow him and they go to this wedding. So they follow him to this wedding in Cana. And just so we're all on the same page, and I assume you kind of know this, but just to make sure, weddings in first century Israel are nothing like weddings in 21st century uh, America. Imagine that. In Jesus' time, a wedding didn't last just a day. It lasted a week, and it wasn't just a month or two of preparation. It was the culmination of a year-long process, and it didn't just involve two families. It involved a whole village, sometimes several villages, and it was a party. In Palestine, a wedding would take place after a feast, which is what's happening in our verses. We'll come back to that, but I kind of want you to get a feel for what's happening in the big picture. So there's a feast, there's a ceremony. After the ceremony, and by this time it's dark, the couple would be conducted to their new home by as long a route as possible so that everyone along the route could wish them well. And listen, when you read in the Old Testament uh, to see what God planned for festivals and special days as religious holidays for the Jewish nation... What you find there is that he built into their culture the practice of celebrating and having a party. Now, we don't know whose wedding this was, uh, but Mary seems to hold a special position, maybe a close friend or a relative, but she had something to do with the arrangements because she was worried when the wine ran out and she had the authority to tell the servants what to do. Well, here's why she's worried. For a Jewish feast, wine was essential. The rabbis said, without wine, there is no joy. You might agree with them, right? The Bible does. Psalm 104 says this, praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. And then goes on for 13 more verses to talk about why God is so great. You get to verse 15, talking about why God is so great. And you find that part of it is that he makes wine that gladdens human hearts, to which many of us in the room would give a hearty thumbs up you know, to that idea. 
And I do want to be clear when we talk about this, that God warns us that this gift that he has given us of wine can be used by our enemy against us. Uh, We're told in the Old Testament that too much alcohol can bite you. And we're told in the New Testament that drunkenness is a sin. And in many churches, listen, pastors speak about the evils of alcohol, and we should be aware of that. But they don't speak of the blessing that God has intended. Obviously, running out of wine was a problem. Hospitality being sacred in the East to run out of wine would be this horrible humiliation for the couple. So Mary makes sure that Jesus knows what's going on. And his response in verse 4 Does it ever sound harsh to you? It wouldn't have been heard that way by Mary. When Jesus says, woman, we don't don't really have an appropriate English word that expresses the tenderness of what he's saying. And just so you know, it's the same word, it's the same way he uh, addressed her when he was hanging on the cross and telling John that he was now to take care of her. So to kind of complete the setup, the stone jars in verse 6 held a total of between 120 to 180 gallons. Let that sink in for a moment. Don't miss that they were used for ceremonial washing, purification rites for the Jews. They weren't just some old mason jars they found laying around. The Jews would use these jars to purify themselves, to wash themselves, to make themselves clean before God. Jesus had them filled to the brim. When they'd done that, Jesus said, take some to the master of the banquet who was responsible for the seating to the guests, and really just kind of ran the show at a wedding. So they take it to him and he tastes it. And verse 10 gives us his response, which really tells us all we need to know about the wine that Jesus created. So why did he do that? I mean, he could have just made wedding punch, right? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, seriously, for hardcore church people, well, you may wish that he'd been, you know, maybe would have healed somebody or fed some hungry people or just raised someone from the dead, although why a dead person would be at a wedding, I don't know. But why wine at a wedding? Do you think this was a coincidence? Do you think Jesus, when Mary came to him, went, well, stink, I'd really hope to do a different miracle for my first one, but I guess if I have to, I'll do this. Or is there something we're learning about God? I want to point out three details, the first two briefly, because really it's the third one that may surprise some, may shock others, and I might get some emails this week. Keep in mind, mandy at exploremcc.org. Okay, so first, this miracle tells us that Jesus was not about popularity, which you would think he would be. This is his first miracle, and it's pretty impressive. 120 to 180 gallons of not just wine, but the best wine. I don't want to make sure that you get, this is not against the backdrop of some great occasion in the presence of massive crowds, although some of his miracles were the feeding of the 5,000. And that just was counting the men. That didn't include anyone else. He healed a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, and he did so in a crowd that was so large, it was pressing in against him. The Bible tells us it was crushing him. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And people were there for that. And then a whole lot more people uh, who knew that he used to be dead, but today he's not so much dead. They found out about it, and it was one of the reasons the religious leaders wanted to crucify him. There's more. We can keep going about his miracles. I just want to make sure you know this isn't one of those. But it could have been, right? Jesus' response when Mary told him that could have been, What? No more wine? Are you kidding me? That's awful. What will we ever do? 
da 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 and then there was wine. You know, it's interesting, the only people we know for sure who knew were the servants. And if Mary didn't at first, I'm guessing she figured it out, and more than likely the disciples that he brought with him. But that was it on that day. So it wasn't about popularity. But this miracle also tells us that Jesus was compassionate. I want to make sure you get that. A moment ago, I pointed out the importance of hospitality. Running out of wine at a wedding would have been incredibly embarrassing. And on this day, Jesus saves a humble Galilean family from shame. Listen, everyone can do the big thing on the big occasion. Jesus does the big thing on the humble occasion. And, and if you know much about Jesus at all, you know that he's humble. Jesus said this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And so for those who did not know that Jesus was humble, the Son of God was humble, that's important for you to recognize. But here's the big one for today. This miracle reminds us, doesn't tell us, because if we've been paying attention throughout Scripture, as we've read all the way from Genesis to the Gospels, we already know this, but we're being reminded here that God loves a party. And I know, I know, I know, if you grew up going to church, that is not the Jesus that you learned about. And if you didn't grow up going to church, still not the Jesus you heard about, right? But look at what Jesus said in Matthew 11. He's talking to a crowd of people, to what can I compare this generation they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. For John, talking about John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man, Jesus, came eating and drinking, and they say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. First of all, I just want to make sure you catch what Jesus is saying here is, Seriously, you just can't please you people, right? I mean, John did not, and, I do, and you just can't please you. But look at what he said about himself and what he, who he was accused of. Because I want to be very clear on this as we're talking about this, so please catch this. Jesus was never drunk. I want to make sure you know that. He was never drunk. But you'll never be accused of being a drunk if you never hold a glass of wine in your hand. I've got three souvenirs from Israel in my office. So I went there 12 years ago. The first is a prayer shawl that I purchased. I just, I just wanted something that represented the holiness of Israel. The second is an OSU yarmulke. Seriously, I bought it right outside the Wailing Wall. That guy saw me coming a mile away. <laughs> and when I was in Cana, I picked up a bottle of wine. It is my attempt. It's in my office because it's my attempt to have fun with anyone who might not appreciate a non-wine-drinking pastor having a Jesus-provided bottle of wine in my office. Don't worry. It's empty. It's not for the hard days, okay? But Jesus wanted to keep this party going. Does it surprise anyone here that Jesus enjoys fun and that we as the creation are designed to have fun and enjoy it as well? You know, when I was growing up, my dad uh, put a basketball hoop in our backyard, and I, please have no illusions of grandeur. It was a four-by-four four pole just driven into the ground with a wooden backboard, a rim attached. There was no, it was on the grass. We just beat the grass down. Just play, we flat, nothing was flat about it. And our friends came over, and we play. We wore it down. But the moments that mean the most to me in our backyard 
were those when mom and dad would come out and play. And parents, I just want you to know, you want to build a memory into your child that will never go away. Play with them. They'll never, I can still see it. I see us in our backyard. My mom is out there telling us that she played on the high school basketball team, dribbling with two hands and shooting underhanded. And I'm looking at her going, <laughs> no. Uh, we used to throw a baseball back and forth in the road out in front of our house. And occasionally, not often, but occasionally, and I can still see this in my head, our dad would come out and play with us. I remember taco night. My mom would call out, how many do you want to eat? And no matter what the person in front of you said, you had to say at least one more or five more. It was this huge competition. My uncle made this board. Now, I've, I've had this since I was a kid, a child. My uncle made this board. Does anybody know what this is? Yeah, it's aggravation. Or when Hasbro made it, they called it sorry. My uncle called it some, something else that we can't say in church. Uh, and we really shouldn't say outside of church as well. But uh, oh shoot is the Christian version of it. And every time he landed on you, he would send you back home as violently as he could, knocking your marble across the table and yelling, oh shoot. And, uh, and I can't tell you how much we laughed around the table playing that game. Do you know how to play euchre? And it was the card game in our family. And everyone wanted to be partners with my dad, because those of you who know anything about euchre, my dad would make it on three nines, a ten, and a jack, which those who don't know anything about euchre, you're not supposed to do that. He would, and then he would win. And we were fighting over who got to be his partner when he was 80 years old. I tell you that because I want people fighting over who gets to be my partner when I'm 80 years old because I'm that much fun. And I hope that's what you want as well. I, I want to remind you of the quote from earlier. You don't quit playing because you grow old. You grow old because you quit playing. So when our kids are grow were growing up, you were very likely to maybe come upon something like this in our house. Uh, uh, and now when our grandkids come over, you will find a destroyed family room with a fort in it. The two-year-olds want to play kerplunk, so we get that out, even though they have no idea what they're doing with it, and they just dump everything in a sleeping bag, and then they crawl inside of it with them. Uh, play has, listen, I, I want you to know play has been shown to improve brain functionality and stimulate creativity. It, it, it can even help us keep uh, feel, feeling young and energetic. Studies show that play improves memory and, and stimulates the growth of the cerebral cortex, and did you know, this is on the notes, I want to make sure you took it home, share it with a friend, you've got friends who need to know this, laughter decreases stress hormones, it increases immune cells and infection-fighting antibodies, thus improving your resistance to disease. Laughter triggers the release of endorphins, which are the body's feel-good natural chemicals, uh, which promote an overall sense of well-being and temporary pain relief. I just want to say, play for adults is critical in our go, 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 go lives where we're always moving at 100 miles an hour. We need to stop and play. Play is God's smile. Laughter means there's hope. I love this quote by Mike Iaconelli. It's from the book Dangerous Wonder. He said, how can we play when the mountain of work and problems that we're faced with each day get higher and deeper? How can we play when the world is overcome with poverty and famine and war and a shooting in a school with little kids? Play is an expression of God's presence in the world. 
One clear sign of absence, God's absence in society is the absence of playfulness and laughter. Play is not an escape. It's the way to release the life-smothering grip of busyness, stress, and anxiety. Playfulness is a modern expression of hope, a celebration of the flickering light of the gospel that plays with the dark by pouncing on it, uh, on the surrounding darkness like a cat toying with a mouse. Let me say that one more time so you get the seriousness of our play. Play, playfulness is a modern expression of hope, a celebration of the flickering light of the gospel that plays with the dark by pouncing on the surrounding darkness like a cat toying with a mouse. That's what our play does in this dark, dark world. Jesus said, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. And please don't hear what he's not saying. Jesus is not saying that we just walk around giggling and laughing all the time. But you should sometimes... Boyle Dahl said this, a little nonsense now and then is cherished by the wisest men. You know what I think is interesting? The early church, when they came to this time of communion, I mean, today we use this, right? Uh, But they used bread and anybody? Anybody? Wine, right, wine. And I wonder if they remembered together as they broke the bread and drank the wine, that as they were remembering, if they didn't cry, I mean, I just want you to remember, they didn't just hear about this. They were there. They saw their friend nailed to a cross, hands and feet. They watched his despair as he was lifted into the sky. They watched him suffer. And I wonder, we don't know. But I wonder if when they were remembering, as they were taking communion, if they didn't look around at each other and say, you know what, he sure loved you. He sure loved you. He sure loved you. Man, he sure loved you. And so today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to remember, we're going to stop, and we're going to remember together and pray together. So let's do that. Father, we're grateful for moments like this. And there's so much going on in the world around us. Father, we need your help. (laughs) Because in moments like this, on weekends like this, there's this tension that we're living in. So help us to live in it a way that honors you and reflects you to the people around us. Help us as we come to moments like this that we are drawn right back, not not as if we're reading a story that's 2,000 years old, but as if we are there that day when they took our Savior and nailed him to a tree because of our sins, not his, ours. Help us to understand the cost of our sins. Help us to not take moments like this for granted when our hearts get realigned with yours. And help us to understand what it is that you call us to and what it costs you to call us to it. And so, Father, in this moment, we remember what Jesus did on the cross for us. And we do it in a way that says we love you. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.
So if you would, take the bread, the wafer that reminds us of Jesus' body. And as we do this, we remember what Jesus said. (laughs) Whenever you eat this bread, you remember me. So we remember. speculation. It's not in the Bible. I'm just, it's just kind of me wondering. But I'm wondering if after they took time to remember and they sat there quietly for a moment, I wonder if one of them didn't smile. <laughs> and somebody else around the table said, what are you smiling about? You know what this wine makes me think of? It makes me think of that wedding. Do you remember that wedding in Cana that we went to? And the other guy smiled and said, oh man, That's the best wine I've ever had in my life. Yeah, he sure loved them, didn't he? Oh, he sure did. I can't wait till he comes back. I can't wait either. You know, my morning uh, reading today, uh, so this is the Bible I'm reading through on a day-to-day basis. I happened upon these words in the book of Ecclesiastes, and I thought, how timely. Solomon writes, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? And it's what we're called to. There are heavy moments in life, and there are moments when we need to help people remember by the way we live and laugh and play that Jesus is the Lord of our life, and he brings joy to us. And so, today we're going to close our service. We're going to stand together. Why don't you do that? And we're going to sing a song that honors what he has called us to and reminds us of it.